I always pay attention. And even when the hairdressing side kind of things as well, like directors and all that, when they do it, they say, oh, you can put a bit of mousse here and this is how you blow it in this direction or you part it in this direction. I pay attention. I pay attention. Most of the time with the task you bow in my hand and thinking I'm watching, <laughs> but I pay attention. If you're smart and if you're lucky enough to any new makeup artists out there, when you go backstage, don't talk because the less you talk, the more you observe and the more you know. And sometimes there's so many techniques that they don't say that if you're quick enough, you get to catch it. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 58 of the So This Is My podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Nigel Stanislaus. Now, if you've ever loved fashion or makeup, chances are you have heard of him or at least recognize him. One of Australia's leading and most influential makeup artists, he was the makeup director for Maybelline New York in Australia for over a decade and a judge in Australia's Next Top Model and Asia's Next Top Model. Nigel has worked with designers like Marc Jacobs, Michael Kors, and Jason Wu, worked with clients like John Legend, Scary Spice, Jenna Dewan, Gigi and Bella Hadid, and more recently, Tina Arena, and also had his work appear in editorials like Harper's Bazaar, GQ, Marie Claire, and Esquire. But how did it all begin? Why was his childhood filled with making kuetak? And what's the story behind him almost becoming a sniper? To learn all that, as well as the reality of working in the fashion beauty circuit, listen on. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. You have such an interesting last name. And I thought we'd start with that. Stanislaus, where does that come from? What does it mean? Okay, so I am born into a Catholic family. And when I was supposed to be baptized, the priest said, there is no Saint Nigel. And if he needs to go to heaven to register his name, he needs to have a saint's name. And at that point, I probably was a few months old. And my dad told the priest and said, why don't you give him a name? And the Polish priest said, Stanislaus. So there you got it, Stanislaus. And when I grew up and I came to Australia, my agent at that time couldn't pronounce, and this was years ago, they they didn't know how to pronounce my last name. I I wouldn't disclose it anymore. But they said, have you got a middle name to brand me? So it's like Andrew, Marcus, whatever. And I said, Stanislaus. And they go like, okay, so Nigel Stanislaus, it is. It sort of became, I guess now, like a stage name, but people said, Mr. Stanislaus. I was like, yes, that kind of thing. It's been a while. And I read that your whole life is about women and your mom had seven sisters. So how has all that kind of feminine energy influenced you growing up? My mom was one of seven sisters. And when I was really, really young, I stayed with my paternal grandmother. So there's a feminine energy there. Daddy was always internationally working. So I, I see him like a few times a year. But I would stay with grandma and my auntie. And, and they would teach me the ways of life. And that was the only way I knew it, which was, of course, the more feminine energy way of how to attack things and how to approach things and all that. And of course, on my mother's side, when I went out on outings and things like that, it was always my mom and all my AI that would come to teach me like they taught me how to swim they taught me how to ride a bike they taught me how to cook they taught me how to sing have fun even makeup as well and to me that was the way of life growing up I didn't understand what was wrong with a boy doing flower arrangement I couldn't be more excited because that was the only way I knew how to do it that's my environment which I, I feel very lucky didn't you used to watch your grandma put on her makeup and you thought it was the most glamorous thing as well 
Oh, absolutely. She used to take care of me and she would take me to church. And I realized there's this ritual that she would get her hair done at the salon and I would follow her to the salon. So my earliest memories of scent other than the kitchen would be the hairspray and then Hazeline Snow. So I would patiently wait for her to get ready. And then I start to notice after this transformation, she'll get dressed and then she'll go out and I go like, oh, that was fantastic. You know, like, and then I realized from a very early age what front of house is and then back of house. So I knew the importance of presentation and how it could change a person and the power of fashion, hair and makeup could really elevate a person into society. And I never not knew that. Like in my mind, everybody has like a back of house and then a front of house. I, I didn't know any other ways. Sometimes I'm shocked with some of my friends from school that the back of house is the front of house. And I was like, huh? Like, you wouldn't want to <laughs> put something in your hair or something to make it a bit nicer. It's just, it's just my upbringing. Everything is about aesthetics and grace, all in the spirit to respect the opposite person that you're spending time with, like a respect. Do you feel like you were starting to try and experiment to find out what your preferred front of house was, to see who you were, what you liked? Oh, if there was anything that could be put on my head, on my face, on my body, I've done it. Whether it was making costumes, my my dad's older sister, my Coco, I remember what time we bought this big roll of raffia string and then we made it into like a Hawaiian grass skirt because we watched um, Elvis Presley in the um, Hawaiian wedding. And she goes, do you want to make a grass skirt? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then we made this like wondrous grass skirt that just went everywhere. And then it tied around the waist and it just moved and everything was going everywhere at once. And I thought it was so magnificent. Or like, I'll take that and I'll put it across it. I could be a tribal chief or drawing my face into a certain way. Like transformation was fantastic. It was like breathing. It was a, a form of self-expression. I'm quite amazed how I don't own a cosplay kind of company. <laughs> but I guess at the end of the day, I just want to like wipe everything off I just go to bed because I have my back of house, my original self without packaging, still in the factory. <laughs> I mean, I, I love to hear that story that you and your family were so free in finding yourself, expressing yourself, which is quite unusual, I suppose, for someone growing up in Singapore, where it's a little bit rigid. You must be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. How did that yeah. gel? I don't know. Like, I guess I was lucky in a way because of my upbringing. My aunties were very kind. Sometimes they're very worried that I would rather stay at home and make guitar with them than to go and play soccer with my friends. I mean, why? You know, you're so sweaty and so smelly and like snot goes everywhere. There's like dirt on your shoes. Like, I don't understand. And it's all hot. It's like, uh and like, I don't understand what is the joy of that with a bunch of guys screaming at each other, chasing a ball across the field with mud everywhere. Like, what's the point? I'd rather stay at home and drink some tea and play with some, you know, pastry. And then at the end of five hours, at least you get jars of pineapple tarts, for example. Like, it just makes so much more sense. And then you can take that and show love, share in the community to give them to people that you care about. In my mind, that was just so much more practical, I guess. I didn't ask for or skateboard or like skates or anything like that it was really weird and and I think all my aunties and aunties and all my uncles thought mm, he's very interesting isn't he <laughs> do you feel worried for yourself that oh you feel so differently compared to all these other guys for some reason um I was always worried in the sense that I was a bit taller very flamboyant very chubby 
where all my other friends scale walls and climb the gates and run away from school. I never did do that because I couldn't scale the walls and I was so afraid to get my white uniform dirty. So I just like, oh, so much trouble. I'll just stay and just do my Chinese lessons or something like that. It wasn't that I was any less naughty. I just don't think I had the physical capabilities to do any of that. But my friends in school were still in touch. They're all daddies now. They've always been very kind to me. And I'm very lucky I've never been bullied for being myself. Maybe because I'm a bit bigger <laughs> and I could sit on them. <laughs> Look at me, like, who wants to bully me? Like, being like nah. No point. <laughs> Just let him go. <laughs> it's like, look at my face. So I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky to not have to go through that. Once in a while, yeah, people do make a comment, but whatever. I've got my chicken wings to eat that they have a fight with you. <laughs> so how do you end up studying apparel design and merchandising at Tomasek Polytech? So I graduated from my O-levels and everybody wanted to do something. And at that time, I really wanted visual merchandising and I couldn't get in. There was apparel design and merchandising. And I was like, it sounds awful. And I realized it was fashion design. So I got there and I did it and I had the best time. Like the teachers are so different. Uh, the teachers knew things like Dior and Isimiyaki and, and you know, Chanel. And, and we talk about all these kind of brands from Paris to, it was so glamorous. And, and my job was to, I remember one time we had a homework was to watch Barbarella, the film, compared to my friends in business school. I think they're still watching <laughs> like pie charts and all that. And I'm like, oh, I need to go to like the museum today because that's my homework. As a kid, that was like the best thing in the world to sit around and discuss about colors and how to match colors together and all that. It was the best thing. It was like so much better than holding a calculator and, and, and then doing pie charts. And I would never have done that. But when I told that to my parents, it was very interesting because they kind of go like, okay, we don't know how to advise you, but you do you as long as you know what you're doing. I remember my mother said like, if you think it's good, just go for it because there's no one in my family that I feel that I could ask. If I want to be an accountant, I could ask an IE, IE, can you teach me how to do this job? Is it good or not? Like, I didn't know. My sister had that. I think she did business side of stuff and accounting and all that. So I had some aunties that were CFOs and all that, and they, they can give her advice with HR and all that kind of thing. But here I want to do fashion. People was like, huh? Shopping. <laughs> But I don't regret it. I cannot imagine anything else. I, I really cannot imagine anything else of my past, which is very interesting. Sometimes I look back and go like, huh, how did I do that? Or if I had a child that was like me, I would be so worried because like, <laughs> wow, that was a big jump. Because there's nobody left and right and go, who wants to do this? Like nobody knows what's happened. It's kind of like very unnerving, like like the vaccine now. Everyone's like, I don't even know what's going to do, that kind of thing. So I took that leap of faith and I just go, nah. that gut feeling that you have, like that same gut feeling has been with me my whole life. And I'm also, quite like a, I realized at a much later age that people like me are a bit frantic sometimes and I could be smiling and then the elevator door opens I walk out of a totally different person because the weather changed the atmospheric pressure changed and I think they called me uh, like an intuitive empath so like I could read the room like if I look at someone you know sometimes I go like how are you and I touch them and I go like what's wrong what do you have to tell me something or like I could feel nervous energy or happiness or sometimes I feel like rays of sunshine and sometimes I feel like very musky not that I can smell it but it's like, I just have this kind of like gut feeling, I guess, the, the sixth sense that people have. And, and the older I get, the stronger, especially in young children, it's very bizarre. Like with young children who cannot express themselves, sometimes I feel like I totally get what you're saying. <laughs> it must have been so interesting when you got that internship in New York as well, and you were suddenly exposed to all these different people doing these things that they love so passionately. 
Yeah, it was such a jackpot for me because I wanted to go to New York because I've been, okay, I, I watched this TV show called Fame that dance and it's like so nice, you know, Leroy Johnson. I really want to be a dancer, but I can't even climb a wall. So how are you going to dance? So I went to New York, CAUS opened up and said, we would love to have you for as an intern. It would be, have to be self-funded. Now, this is where I'm also very lucky. It's like, I've got a father that could afford it. It was a lot of money to get me there to house me for the time and all that kind of thing. And this was in the 90s as well. Also without iPhones, without maps, without personal phones, I had a bunch of traveler's checks and that was it. And when I got there, it wasn't even winter, but it was like October and it was so cold that I had to go to the payphone and actually dial a collect or something like that and like in public talking to my mom. Oh my goodness. What was it like just landing in New York and having to figure things Um, out yourself? I don't know. Like, you know, my whole life, I live in movies. My whole life is movies. So in my mind, it'll be like, oh my gosh, it's going to be coming to America, like Eddie Murphy or like <laughs> like everything. I could turn around the corner. It could be everything is a reference to a movie or a TV show. If I cook something, it's like, oh my gosh, it's Little Nonya. Everything is a TV show. So to me at that time, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like Eddie Murphy coming to America. All the graffiti on the wall. I've never seen graffiti in my life. Like trash cans, people, you know, swearing on the streets and so many Many kinds of people, African-American people, Jamaican people, all these accents. You're walking down the street and you're listening to all these accents. It's like, it was really such a big melting pot. And I met friends as well. They were brought up you know, in America. I had such a good and loving upbringing and some of them are not as lucky. So they don't understand why I don't seek to do drugs or drink myself blind because I, I don't think I was ever that unhappy because every time I was, did a little frown, my grandma go, I tell poppy am I? Okay. You want ice kacang? Okay. You know, you know, just do this. <laughs> you want chicken rice? Okay. You know, so it would be nice to go back just to say hi to everyone that has now passed on and what they were wearing at that time and, and, and what they eight at the time. I used to be quite embarrassed coming from Singapore because it's Asian and we speak like la 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 ha 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 that kind of thing and I really put in a lot of effort to uh, learn enunciation and how to pronounce things right. Um, not perfect but I made an effort to sound a little bit more international a bit more global. I guess that really helped me in, in the long run because then I could stand on the stage on a global stage and present. But at a young age it's like I cannot look like Chao Abeng from the corner there speaking like that. It was my front of house branding that I had to keep up. Back of house, I'm like grunting and but the front of house you have to be quite like in a modern day Michelle Obama. (laughs) Like you know, you just have to energy is like when you look at her, you're like, okay, what do you want to say to me? I'll give you time. And I and I really want to have that kind of energy that is entertaining, caring as well, empathetic and modern, I hope. But um, in saying that I'm also quite old fashioned. Wasn't New York the place where you were exposed to fashion shows and models for the first time? Oh, yes. I think someone invited you to go and see Kate Moss. That was your first exposure. Oh, they invited me to go watch a show. And I said, no. And then they said, Kate Moss will be backstage. And go like, okay. And then that time it was CK1. That was all the rage. Every kid was saving money to buy CK1. Because why? It was the first ever unisex fragrance. Other than CK1, I had Dunhill. And I don't want to wear Dunhill. So I obviously tried to wear CK1. And and anyway, so she said, so this guy from Federated that owns Macy's and all that. And he sort of came in as a speaker to my company that I worked at, Color Association. And he said, do you want to come in, you know, backstage? And there's Kate Moss. And I was like, yes. So I went backstage 
I met her, you know, like she was lovely. She was Kate Moss. But then I turned around and sort of looked around like this, you know, with my eyes. And I saw this like bright lights, like bright lights, you know, all these bulbs everywhere that reminded me of like a hawker center. Like, oh my gosh, hawker center, you know, like all the bright lights everywhere. I turned around and it was the makeup station. So I was just like, what is this? And then my mentor at that time, he said, do you want to be a makeup artist? And I said, oh no, boys don't do makeup. Boys only do fashion design. <laughs> I don't know if this is karma. But I remember the time. No, 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 no. I'm only here for fashion design. I want to be like Bill Bless or Oscar de la Renta or Calvin Klein or Ralph Lauren, like kind of all the American kind of designers. And yeah, it was quite weird. And I went to fashion school and, and I realized I couldn't sew <laughs> because you think you would need to sew at fashion school. And my teacher goes like, oh my goodness, we have a fashion show, but the Mac makeup artist did not turn up. Can you do some makeup? And I was like, yeah, I sure can because I can draw. And I did it. And everybody was like, Oh my goodness, they all look amazing. So obviously at that time, I wouldn't draw everybody like Madonna and Blonde Ambition tour because it was such a thing. It was so long ago. I, I think that really started it. And of course, this was after I went to New York, but in New York, I remember I met this guy called Seth and he was working at Origins Counter. He was so beautiful. I remember like when he dressed up as a girl and he went out, like he really looked like Linda Evangelista and he spoke really softly. And I guess that was my first experience of having a transgender friend at 18 years old. And I was like, huh? In the daytime, you're tapo. And then nighttime, you jamo. It's like really bizarre, but so beautiful. And the way he did it was not like a drag queen, but was more like a woman in the energy. Again, you know, very capable. I would just look at him while he gets ready for the clubs and all that. He would just line his lips and he goes like, do you know what I'm doing? And I was like, what? And he goes like, I'm lining my lips. And I was like, okay, I'm using an Origins lip pencil in iced tea. And I was like, oh, and, and that was the first product I've ever known. <laughs> like in my adult <laughs> Origins lip pencil and iced tea. Okay, it's the best new pencil ever. I was like, okay, I remembered that. And then when I first had my um, my makeup kit, that was the first thing I bought. Origins <laughs> pencil and iced tea. And um, I don't think they sell it anymore. So long ago. We we're talking about 1996, you know what I mean? But I have a memory like that. Things that I collect in. That's amazing. And so you had an experience, you came back, but before you did fashion, you were in national service, right? Oh, yes. I did fashion. Okay. Then I went to New York. I was like 18, 19 or something like that. And then I think 19, I did national service. And before you so. went there, you shaved your head. Yes, out of defiance because people are like, oh my gosh, you're gonna be bought that, you're gonna be bought that. Everybody says you're gonna be bought that. I go to church, people say you're gonna be bought that. Like everywhere, everywhere. Like, oh my god, are you prepared? You're gonna be bought that, you're gonna be bought that. And at that time, when I had so much hair, not anymore, but at that time, I had so much hair. Like, I really wanted to have that Aaron Kwok kind of hair, like that T Sun, you know, that. And I thought my hair was just like so fantastic. And, and I got so angry that people were just like, oh, you're going to the army, you're going to the army. And I just didn't want to talk about it anymore. So I just wanted to shave it off. And then people, oh, you went in. I said, no, I. I've got three more months, but I just don't want to talk about it. So I just shaved it off so that people don't remind me anymore. So I'm, I'm quite like, just get it done with. What was that experience like? Because it's so contrary to who you are as a person as well. But then you almost became a sniper, I hear. I was really bad at everything. Really bad. <laughs> really, really, really bad. I was really smelly and really dirty and really bad. Like people would just run. They just run and they're so happy. They go into the mud and they come out. They're all smiling. They think it's like Survivor. And I look like a disaster survivor. Like, help me! 
that come up here. Everyone's like, yeah, they high five and everything. They're like, don't touch me. I was really, really tragically bad. My favorite time of the day was showering because then I could be clean and I could call my mom after shower. And that's all I wanted, you know. But amongst everything, I realized that we were all given guns to train and our M16s at that time. <laughs> Surprisingly, in my foxhole, I could shoot. I could shoot nighttime, daytime, moving target, cross target, everything. I could shoot everything, like whether I'm proning, whether I'm kneeling. I can't kneel anymore. I think my stomach is too big. I could do this. I could do everything. And I thought, oh, not bad. And I'll, I'll be one of those that could like strip the rifle and put it back together and it'll be perfect, much faster than anyone else. I'm telling you, it's because I've been doing quite that since I was six years old. <laughs> so my fingers are very fast, but it was fantastic. And the only thing that I lacked three rounds and the three rounds was means I had to run 100 meters and then go and shoot the opponent about five meters from you. And because I was breathing like this, because I was so unfit, that my bullets went everywhere. But no, 100 meters, like a sniper, not, not a problem. <laughs> but when you go <laughs> up front, I can't shoot. Yeah, so almost had it. If I didn't miss that one, I probably would have been a sniper. <laughs> very funny. Very, very funny. So ignoring the almost going to be a sniper part, you then came out, you went to Monash University. How did that happen? I really wanted to apply for the fashion. I wanted to go back to New York at mm. that time. I felt very robbed that I had to stop everything. And all the other interns went on to universities or were in universities, but my life had to be cut short into like exactly about three years. So when I came out and I wanted to apply for it, and then 9-11 hit, obviously being the only son and the first grandson of my clan, my parents were not going to send me there. And they would abolish me and abandon me into the far end of the earth, which was Australia. So grudgingly, I came and, and I've got families in Perth and Canberra and all that. And they wanted me to go to Perth to study. But when I went there, I was like, cannot. <laughs> it's too quiet. <laughs> and and I had some money. So I, I applied for all the design schools in Australia. And I got into Monash because it was a brand new building. We had a lot of computer sets to use. And like the, the platform there was really good as well. It was very good because... Everything was new. A lot of design schools don't have computers at that time. We're talking about 2000 here. So they don't have any of that at that time. And now everybody has one, but at that time it was really precious because you need time to spend in the computer labs, remember, to finish your project. And you really need it to, to do it. And then at 11 o'clock, they close and you can't do it, for example. So they had a lot of, the facilities are fantastic. So, and the teachers are really good. That's why I went to Monash. You flew through it, didn't you? You got six high distinctions. Oh my gosh, it was fantastic. I was so bad at everything in life. And then suddenly, I was so good at everything in life. And then suddenly I was walking around, I was Brad Pitt or something like that. My history of fashion, illustration, everything, everything was fantastic. I was like, oh my gosh, like, I'm such a late bloomer, you know, like, and then all those times I was so worried about my O-levels and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a disaster. I, I'm only good at shooting guns and that's it and making great thoughts and, <laughs> and dancing. And then now, you know, and then suddenly like, I mean, we worked very, very hard. Like it was our life. We literally bled through the whole thing and I was very proud I had a scholarship and graduated and was headhunted by an illustrating firm and, and I worked there for about two years illustrating books you have eight books out there yeah by five mile press yeah but eight yeah I think eight no maybe about 12 actually but that so, whole time you were also doing freelance makeup as well on the side 
oh yeah, I, I thought I didn't have to do it anymore because I thought now I am a graphic designer. Like I'm not doing makeup anymore. And then I learned how to drive because then, you know, in Australia it's cheap to buy a car. So I learned how to drive and, and my driving instructor said, can you do my makeup? And she said, how much do you want? I said, I don't know. She goes, I'll give you 50 bucks. And after I did it, she was so happy. She threw another 50 bucks down. Like, that was a hundred bucks. And then that's how it all started. They're like, it went ding. And I was like, since I've got the makeup, if people wanted to hire me, then why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So how do you start to make your way up? Because eventually you were working with Australian brands as well, like Lovisa, Cotton On, Barda. How do you get to that stage? With an agent. And that agent was the mm-hmm. one that wanted me to be called Nigel Stanislaus, remember? Right. Um, so for the first 10 years of my life, every time I walked onto set, people were like, oh, we expected a six foot five Polish man to walk in. But no, a Singaporean kid walks in, you know. <laughs> Before so, your agent, you had this period where this one person said, you're not going to make it because you don't fit the profile. Oh, yeah. When Matt came into it, it really broke my heart. When, when Matt came into Australia, I really want to get a part-time job. I, I thought the world of Matt at that time because it was all-inclusive, all races, all ages. And I went there and she basically said to me that I'm not pretty enough, um, maybe overweight, probably a boy. I don't know if it's anything to do with Asians or not. Because I looked over there and they're all beautiful girls, beautiful actresses, you know. There was no one that looked like me. And I was really upset because I thought Mac was all inclusive, but she didn't even want to have a bar of me. But the funny thing is five years on, after I signed on as a makeup director for another brand, she came to one of my masterclasses and literally paid hundreds of dollars to sit in the crowd and watch me talk, which was like really bizarre. Did she come up and speak to you later saying that I remember you? Oh, yes. Yes. I said, oh, I said, thank you so much for coming today. And I reckon there was a crowd of like maybe five or 600 in the seminar room. And I said, any questions at all about any techniques or anything about my career or anything like that? And she said, oh, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I remember when you came to me for a job and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's her, my nightmare, that, pho- that phobia you have. And I was like, oh, Oh my gosh, it is her. And then I thought, what am I going to do? So I just smiled. And she even had the audacity to tell the whole room that she talent scouted me. Which was like, I don't know which version of the truth you came from, girl, because that didn't happen, girl. Like you told me to walk out, you know? And I was like, okay. And now that I'm in a fancy suit with a big spotlight and a big international brand behind me, then you want to come and watch me do my techniques that... No, I forgive, but I realized that I never forget. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm one person that I can forgive. I feel like, oh, you know, it is what it is. But if you want me to trust you again, it's very hard. Very, very hard. Yeah. I, I, that's what I learned about myself. When you first got that rejection, I think a lot of people who are doing something unconventional will get people saying, there's no way you can ever make it. I wonder, mm-hmm. did you ever feel so, oh, I want to give up if this person in such a big brand thinks this way, they are probably right. And what kept you going? Oh, yeah. For, I, I always think they're right for about two hours and 15 minutes. And then I'll cry and I feel sorry for myself. And then I write to my best friends. Go, I want to jump off the building, but I never jump off the building. I always end up sitting in a corner eating ice cream or something. And you know, I'm so dramatic. So dramatic. And um, I hate this. I hate myself. I hate, 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 hate. Until someone goes, hey, you want to go hot pot? Like, okay. And then suddenly it was like sunshine again. As you can see, food really drives my life and my mental psyche. And I cried. And I go like, I never want to be a makeup artist again. Like, I can't believe the world is so cruel and so this. And then there's always this fire inside of me. My, I don't know, my gut feeling, the guardian angels, the spirit of the world's God. 
Allah, Buddha, they sort of like light a fire in me. And then I go, take a deep breath, give it one more go and don't apologize. Don't apologize. Do not stop. Like it's not an option. And and, and then I go, all right, because I, I've really been rejected. So I've got nothing. So what else can I lose? Because you can't lose anything when you got nothing. I was like, it's still zero. So but I'll just ask. And then if you cannot, then cannot laugh you know there we go watch a cinema and buy some popcorn and drink milk bubble tea that's it that kind of thing and it's funny even my best friend luke elijah he always says to me he's like you always do your best when people tell you you can't do it and i'm like yes because I, i'm quite arrogant in that sense that i'm like don't you tell me what i can or cannot do how dare you and how did you get your first asian which i believe was the catalyst for the incredible career that you've had since so I was back in Singapore. I was working for the Women's Weekly. I was on set with this model called Rachel Scantiland, which was beautiful. And I did this makeup for her. And she goes, oh, darling, it's really nice. You should call my friend. And I was like, okay, why? Goes, oh, he's an agent. And I was like, okay, why? I emailed him actually that time. Emailing was a very big deal. And I said this. He goes, sure. All right, we'll get you into the agency. I'm like, huh? That's really fast. I attached some pictures and images of what I've done. Because yeah, yeah, we get you into the agency, and 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 it just worked from there. And and when I got to Melbourne and I went to the agency, all the agents like look up and go yes, and they're like, hi, I'm Nigel Stanislas. I'm here just to say hello. I'm new to the agency, and they go, no, we don't have an appointment. I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. It turns out that this boss was waiting in Sydney. There were two branches. He thought I moved to Sydney and not Melbourne. Do you feel like once you had that agent, that everything changed and all these opportunities started coming? Um, that's a very interesting topic about whether the agent gets you work or not. I, I think it's a partnership. When I first started until today, obviously the power has shifted a lot. I've obviously become more established and also this social media. But back in the day, the agent holds a lot of weight in getting your work because they're like the directory to help you find work. And yeah, I, I got a lot of work from them. And, and then through the agency, I met a lot of people as well and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, definitely. They got me yeah, the Bardo and all the other jobs. How important do you think that social media is for your work and just raising your profile? When it first started, it was a bit of fun. And then after that, I realized there was such a thing as Instagram makeup artists because yep. somebody came to me and go, can you do a cut crease for me? I'm like, I'm not the tailor. Like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And then I was like, oh my God, all these kids, social media terms that were starting out quite a few years ago. And now there's like a crossbreed, a hybrid between. It's really rude to say real real makeup artists and non-real makeup artists. There are different kinds of makeup artists now that, you know, so if you're a social media makeup artist, basically how you know is you have a lot of fun with your makeup. You put on a lot of makeup, but usually the faces are their own and they can do like clouds and rainbows and things that you can stack off as many lash strips as they want because the art director or the client for them is themselves. For people like me, our client art director are brands. So I don't get to do what I want always, I can suggest, but there's a lot more money involved and a lot more investment involved. When you look at my account, it's not as exciting as theirs because it's actually all the latest works that I, I, I have done. It's quite opposite. Like 99.999% of the makeup are the people that are not my face, are models' faces. But for Instagram, social media are probably their faces. 
if you know what I mean. There's no time limit if you're at home doing your own makeup. On set, sometimes you do it in the dark, sometimes you do it in a rocking car, in a boat or something like that. You have 15 minutes to get it done. The pressures are very, very different. Sometimes you have to do it and then shoot it underwater, it, you know, things like that, or it's raining. So you need to know a lot, like the gamut of knowledge to be a working makeup artist is huge. It's not just like, hi guys, I just want to show you this lip color. I'm not saying that they're less than us, but it, it shouldn't even be together. It's, it's a totally different breed. You know, like um, a pastry chef should not be a hawker chef, a cook. Totally two different worlds, but they're all food, but totally different. So it shouldn't even be compared like that. What is the wildest brief that we've gotten before? And how do you break it down and think, oh, this is how I'm going to execute it? Oh my God, they're all pretty wild. Like, I remembered once we had to shoot on a sheep farm, acres and acres of land from Mimco, and the wind was like close to a typhoon. My friend, Kath Wills, wanted the, the model's hair to be big like a lion, like this, like this. And I couldn't, like, you walk out and then the you know, it's just going to like fly, like, you know, like the flag. It's so crazy. And we, we had to do it. And I remember I was using something like wires at the back of the head just to like pin everything down. So you could only shoot her from the front and not the side because it would look like an Egyptian sphinx. Like it's not round here. It's like all stuck. But from the front, it's convincingly really round, but it's a lot of side effects. A, a, a lot of strange things. What else did I have to use? Didn't bring nail polish one time and had to use lip gloss just to paint over. And don't touch the fingers, you know, one time we didn't have eyeliners like liquid eyeliner and then i thought oh i just used a bit of mascara even the brush that i painted over and it still worked and all things so you really need to improvise and need to be smart about it and be gracious about it as well because you're dealing with someone and you don't want to be have that energy with (laughs) because you must understand it's an exchange of energy between you and the model or the celebrity and your job is to make sure they're ready mentally in their heart on their facial features everything's all done as they walk up and do their job so it's a supporting role when you're a makeup artist you have to make sure they're good here they could hear and they're good here but if you're thinking ah, ah, like this they're getting like well, what's wrong what's wrong am i spoiling your day like they're going to walk out questioning themselves and and that's the worst <laughs> so a good makeup artist would know how to once you're finished you're like oh, it's amazing no matter what keep your cool I, I guess the front of house is always smiling and then <laughs> the back of house is like oh my gosh that kind of thing yeah always yeah. always how do you grow your skills? I feel because a lot of it is on the job, right? Learning how to adapt and all that. What were your ways of just ensuring that you were constantly leveling up? Do lots of fashion week is one thing because I go there and then my eyes go this way and that way, and I'm looking at what people are using. Like, hey, you changed your foundation. Oh my gosh, what lipstick is that? That kind of thing, and and being very like busybody is the best thing at fashion week because like, oh, what brush is that? Oh, where did you get that? Can I have it? That kind of thing, and that's how I, I see it. I used to assist other people as well. I see how they do lots of basic things like a red lip, eyeliner, eyebrows, foundation. Like I never get sick of them. I always say, how did you do that? How do you do Asian eyes? How do you do Indian eyes? How do you do African eyes? I always pay attention, and even when the hairdressing side of things as well, like directors and all that, when they do and say, oh, you can put a bit of mousse here and this is how you blow it in this direction or you part it in this direction. I pay attention. I pay attention. Most of the time with a tassu pao in my hand and eating <laughs> and I'm watching. <laughs> but I pay attention. If you're smart and if you're lucky enough to any new makeup artists out there, when you go backstage, don't talk. Because the less you talk, the more you observe and the more you know. 
And sometimes there's so many techniques that they don't say that if you're quick enough, you get to catch it. When I, I, I read books, I watch movies as well. I never, I never stop learning. And and the thing about my uh, assistants, if they don't assist me for a few months and they come back, they go, would you do everything different? So, oh, I change it up. I've got about three or four uh, makeup kits in my house and, I, and they're all different. And I just bring them up. They go like, oh, you know, it's kind of like tick up, tick up. And you go like, oh, today's this. And it's like, ah, you know, it's kind of like a ready, steady cook. And he's just like, okay, this is what we're going to have. And then we just have to do a face out of this. Like, and it's very master chef. Yeah. But I love it. Speaking of your assistance, I think I read once before you said that you admire persistence and you have to be a bit stalkerish as well. You have to ask and ask and ask to be able to join yeah. it. Could you expand yeah. a bit more about the nature of breaking into um, the industry? Because there are makeup artists that have this idea. There are people out there that have this idea that if I want to be a makeup artist, I just wear high heel shoes and do French perfume. And they, they have this whole concept that it's like working in Takashimaya or somewhere <laughs> or Daimaru. And you just walk in, hello, would you like to try a new fragrance? And oh, would you like to try? And then their hands are like dancing like this. I'm like, no, you know, like we're so filthy with like creams and we lug bags up the stairs. It's actually quite tough. We wear sneakers. We don't wear beautiful shoes because because we're working, we really are working. Like one of the job hazards that I have is like 99% of my clothes are all dark or like black or really dark blue. And a lot of them think it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, it's like gossip girl glamorous. It's not. So when they ask me, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want them to ask a few times. And I said, oh, I'll call me back in June or July or whatever. And if they call me back, that's one thing. And then the first time they got on set with me, I usually let them do a lot of laborious work. that has nothing to do with makeup at all. And if they still want to come back, then I know that it gets better from there. Yeah. It's very Ipman, you know? Who really wants it? And, and it's a business. The ones that talk too much or the ones that call me, oh, thanks, babe. Oh, babe. It's in the P. <laughs> I'm not your babe. Or like when I do makeup and I say, hey, come here, look at this. I want you to see, I want you to do this and this and this. And every time I do something for them, they go like, oh, beautiful. Oh, amazing. Oh, yes. Oh, fetch. Oh, snatch. And I just look at them. I was like, because I've got 13 seconds to teach you how to do this so that I can get my words out. Okay. <laughs> Especially in Australia, they like to talk a lot. It's not a bad thing, but it's a nature to like, it's a way of communication. Like Asian uh, students are very, yes, yes, yes. Okay. I see. Yes. But over here it's like, amazing. It's fantastic. Oh, I love it. I was like, thank you for your validation, but I need to teach you how to do the blush. Okay, because you are distracting my train of thoughts and my eye, my contact lenses is going to pop out because my eyes are like staring like this. So just focus. <laughs> I'm very Asian and very militant, like when I come to teach, because I think it's, I'll teach you properly, but you have to be the student and not read me your rights. You know, what you're <laughs> protest now. <laughs> So I need to know who are the ones that are willing. And, and some of them, I not mean, but I'm very harsh on them. I tell you like this and this and this and this. And then the next morning they turn up again. They're like, hmm, okay, this is what I can teach. Because I need them to be a bit hard. I can't have snowflakes. I cannot. This industry does not allow snowflakes. I have been everywhere myself. I've lugged luggages up Parisian flats and I'm not going to get there. They're like, huh, where's the, you know, where's the concierge? You know, like, no, you do everything yourself. I mean, on Instagram, yes, it's very like nice. But in real life, back of house, preparation, nobody knows. And I need them to know that from a very young age so that when they come out to work as a legitimate makeup artist, it really helps them. It's, it's so much easier. You talk a bit about the hot life. And of course, you look at fashion when you think it looks so glamorous. You have a jet setting life. What is the reality? What is it really like for you? For a good five years, I, I was permanently jet lagged. 
I had to write myself notes on the side of my bed to tell me if I had to wake up or not that day because I, I would just wake up anyway. Sometimes it's a weekend, I just say go back to sleep in Sunday or something. I, I used to live a lot out of different hotels. So every time I wake up, it's like a different ceiling or like sometimes I can't find a toilet because the layout of the hotel was different. <laughs> I mean, that is how crazy it was. It's very fun. I eat at all kinds of amazing restaurants. Lunch is always being paid for. Flights are usually paid for at one time. We work at the most amazing locations. If not, why go to shoot in New York or Paris or London? If you want to shoot in a studio, you can just shoot anywhere in Johor Bahru if you want to. But like, why do you have to go all all the way there. Obviously, you want to show the best the city has. So I get access to all of that, whether it's the clifftop or ancient temple or something like that. And I'm very lucky, you know, maybe, but also very lonely because I can buy as many souvenirs as I want. Sometimes we are walking and you can see the Tour Eiffel, like the, the Eiffel Tower, and you go like, oh! And you turn around, it's just you and some person trying to sell you a keychain. I just thought like, it'd be nice to have my mom there or my friends there or my sister there or someone there. They go, oh my God, look at that. Do you want to go get ice cream? Yeah, or like I'll be in Broadway watching Les Mis by myself. Amazing experience, but it would be nice to have someone that is I'm close to, to share the experience with. Other than that, the good thing is you get to meet a lot of wonderful people that you see on TV and, and always wonder whether like, you know, whether it's Gigi Hadid or Bella Hadid or Kendall Jenner, Mark Jacobs. I even met Lady Gaga. I've worked with John Legend. And, and to be in that personal space is wonderful. And you realize at the end of the day, it's just really freaking hard work. My conspiracy theory about back of house and front of house is true because I then go to their space and they're on the couch in their robes like this with bunny slippers on, resting, and then somehow they have to come out and I've got to get them ready and then you get on stage and that's front of house. So I knew that instinctively from a very young age and to me it was just like, yeah, okay, you need to get ready now. And then when you're not ready, you're not ready. I don't know if this is a destiny for me or something, but it just happened. I get a bit sad sometimes because I wish... People that I'm close to understand what I'm talking about, the energy and, and you know, standing from the side of stage and, and, and watching them and all that kind of thing. To be in a personal space of this really cool kid, really cool person that I've worked with, musician uh, Troy Sivan, you know, shooting the, the cover of Elle magazine with him was amazing. Where in COVID, I managed to do a tour with Tina Arena. Can you imagine? There was the only tour in the whole world that finished the tour and didn't get stopped by any lockdowns. And I've only met Tina Arena this year and she's amazing. Like it was so lucky that I sort of fangirled her after meeting her, like her voice and everything and what she gives to the crowd. And I can see from the side stage about the audience of how hungry they are for this kind of affection from, from music and the arts. That's why I always think that the music and the arts are so important instead of sports because everyone's smelly. <laughs> the music and the arts is the one that feels alive when we are sad, what do we listen to? When we want to cry, when we break up, we watch, you know, Netflix and Jennifer Aniston. When we're happy, who we listen to? Aaron Kwok? No, maybe not. <laughs> when you're sad, you listen to Sandy Lam. These are creative people that pour their heart and soul into their work as a medium to give, to sell, sell to you. And then it's so interesting how some governments, they don't invest that much in it. When it's these creators that bring the heart and the hope of nations of people out of lockdown yeah. because they could relate. Like Adele, how many records has she sold about crying about a breakup? Oh my gosh, she's <laughs> complaining and complaining and complaining. And she's brought so many women and so many boys
boys and all these people that are heartbroken out of this. That's arts. And that's what I do as well. Like, not that I can sing or anything, but I paint a picture for that people to say that one day when I grow up, I'm going to be this person or help the artist to get on stage to talk. So I'm one of the skills to do that. And I'm very proud of it, you know. And then recently, I, I just finished a, a filming for a, a CBS TV show that's meant to be filmed only in the US. It's called Come Dance With Me. And one of my clients, I was the head of department for the hair and makeup and also the judges. And my main judge that I had to do makeup for was Jenna Dewan, who was from Step Up. Yeah. And, and she was also, until recently, the ex-wife of Channing Tatum. And I, I know who she is. And for the show, the cult 90s dance movie and all that. When I watched that movie, I thought I wanted to be a dancer, you know. And then I met her and she's so amazing and she was so lovely and pretty as well and getting to work on her with her during a major lockdown in, in Australia was like who's going to complain it's like playing Barbie doll every day sometimes I'm like I'm so lucky to to be able to work with people and to be in that circle like that yeah. nobody in my family has done it and I wish I could share like look across the table like oh I know right but it's only me like I don't know if I'm the chosen one or like what's going on <laughs> Like, I'm a sniper, but then I'm a makeup artist. Like, what is going on? What is going on with a tattoo bow in my hand? Looking at Lady Gaga in a Mark Jacobs show. Like, it is so funny. As a young boy, I was, you know, I was thought, I'm just going to grow up. And then I'm, I'm going to wear like really nice clothes. And I'm going to speak with really good elocution. And I'm going to travel the world. And I'm going to live in New York. Well, be careful because everything I manifested came true. Except losing weight, because I never really manifested losing weight. But one of my best friends said, do you realize that when we're 16, this is what you said? And that you just fly to New York and do your stuff and then come back? I'm like, yes. It's like, yeah, you did that. And it's like, oh my God, everything was true, you know? And so be very careful. But I thought I would be such a different person. At 16, I didn't think what I would be like at 40. But let me tell you, okay, like, I'm carrying a really nice bag. I'm really wearing nice clothes. I'm walking down the street in Chinatown in the Lower East Side and I see this Aso selling batang. So I buy two batang for $12. She said it's $5. I gave her $12 because, you know, she's so old and she's just selling out from her basket. And I put the two batang into my bag and I go to Balthazar's and eat a $200 dinner. And then the next morning I wake up and I'm looking for my keys. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's batang in my in my bag. And I'm on, a, I'm on set with Mark Jacobs and I got batang. You know, it's so bizarre. So <laughs> you, you know what I mean? When you were 16, you wanted to do all these things and you did. Didn't you also say at one point you want to appear in a TV show and then you end up yeah. appearing on TV show? Tell us about I always that. Te- I always tease like, one day I'm going to be in front of a TV show. I'm going to scroll everyone and boss everyone what to do with Oh. Be careful what you wish for because karma and me is interesting because suddenly I became the judge three times, like, I don't know, like three seasons or something. Two seasons of Asia's Next Top Model and one season of Australia's Next Top Model. I was obviously the head of uh, Maybelline at that time. I was traveling around a lot through the countries. And obviously they thought that, I guess the Western countries thought that I had a face that Asian countries would like. <laughs> and trust. So I was sent to Indonesia and I was dancing around all the editors and all that. And then to Malaysia and Hong Kong and all that. But anyway, in Singapore, I said hello to the local APEC people from Maybelline and L'Oreal in Singapore. And then they said, oh, do you want to head up this new project that we want to do it to join forces with Foxtel? And I said, sure. And then next thing you know, I'm sitting on the throne screaming at people. It was really fun. 
I met Patricia Field, who was the head designer for Sex and the City, Devil West Prada, Younger. So the one with the bird, she does all of that. So Jessica Parker, Carrie Bradshaw, she invented Carrie Bradshaw and Samantha Jones. What they wear, their earrings, that's Patricia Field. And then also on the far left, we have Yu Sai, who is a Taiwanese photographer that shot every celebrity in LA. Like we became really good friends as well. And, and then there's Cindy Bishop, who is this like diva of Thailand. So beautiful. And then we just harass all the, not harass, but scare all the contestants <laughs> well I scared the contestants it was really really fun what was the reality of shooting something like that I mean you mentioned MasterChef before and I read from MasterChef you would see like an hour's worth of TV but it's actually a full day's worth of shooting just to get that one oh, yes. hour right yes yes so let's say on an episode, we'll probably be like 20 minutes, 23 minutes on screen, on air. But that filming would have taken six hours. And I don't know what studies they've done because at one point when I first started, there was a bench top. Like Tyra Banks, she would have a bench and she sits down there with claws on the table and you go like, you are this and this and this. And then suddenly they decided that it was friendlier to take away the table altogether. And I was like, what about my stomach? Like, where am I going to keep that during the filming? And meanwhile, you have seen Cindy Bishop on the left with legs that are like 10 meters long. And then there's me. And I was like, how am I going to fashion myself to sit like, like I had to like practice for hours in front of me. Like, do I do this? How do I do how do I angles in my body? And I decided at one point, like, this will have to be the pose that I'm doing to the side so that it just doesn't look like this so I had to do a little bit more fashion a little bit more elevated and just wear black you know and then I realized that the filming w- would have gone on for five or six hours and I had to just post like this the whole time sometimes there were cramps like my leg would go dead you know and because now my, my whole body showing I had to wear what do you call it the body thing so I had to wear it I'm like oh my god it is so tight <laughs> Do you go to the toilet? I'm going to take everything. I forget it. I'll just keep it in. You know, and then that made me really grumpy. So I'm like screaming at all the contestants. <laughs> you were head of Maybelline for a decade. What was that point where you decided, okay, it's time for me to leave? What were your thoughts? It was very interesting. I, I think life changes, uh, lifestyle changes, brands change. From when I first started till when I left, I, I found that it was a very different evolved kind of brand. And I think I've always thought that 10 years is a good time to leave while you're still at it and, and just like leave while you're still, you know, and, and a lot of people are a bit shocked, but it's good. It's a bit sad. Sometimes I still feel that I have the um, civic duty to stand at the pharmacy and, and tell people what lipstick they should buy and they go like yo, who are you and I was like oh no one sorry <laughs> it took a long time for me to moan the death of Mr. Maybelline because I would go like oh no that's not your shade or like maybe you should use this color come back next week we're launching a new color like I would know things like that and to see women who are you know in a hurry I find that it was my, my civic duty to help busy city girls to find the right shade or the best mascara for them even after I left Maybelline I still did that for a while like not a lot but I was like it's really embarrassing. Like, don't do that. And then when I bought makeup, I never had to buy mascara for a good 10 years and then I had to buy mascara. It's like, oh, oh my gosh. And I find it very hard to like walk next door to L'Oreal and buy L'Oreal or like Rimmel or, or anything. Like, I just had to go buy Maybelline. Like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I can buy anything I want, you know? So, yeah. Like, I'm very grateful. It, it sort of catapulted my career and status and all that kind of thing. And as a kid, I've always wanted to tell women what to wear and how to wear and all that. And then I got my wish. What was the plan after that? I mean, everyone knew you as Mr. Maybelline and now you yeah, have left. So who were you? <laughs> right. I don't know. I'm just me, actually. Um, and I thought, oh, that's it. 
my life is over. I want to die. Give me chassis power. I sit by the roadside and cry, jump off a building, whatever. Of course, never happened. Being so dramatic. And then I just woke up and go like, I just had to reset and see what I want to do with my life. And immediately Benefit snapped me up and I went on a tour with them and we launched uh, products with them for the rest of that year. And then after that, I did a lot more other stuff. Like I, there's so many other stuff that I did. Like I really thought for a moment that it was like a career suicide, but it really opened up a lot of collaboration. Like this year alone, even this year alone, I was one of the guest judges uh, with David Jones in one of the prestigious beauty panel. Last year, I was as well for Bureau as well as one of the beauty judges. So as Maybelline, I couldn't do any of that because I couldn't talk about any other products. But now I could sit around a platform and, and start to give a very even and fair view. And, and a lot of people still go like, oh, I thought you were with Maybelline. And then it was quite interesting how people still associate me. I must have been very successful in selling that image. And of course, with a very strong team behind me at that time. But I think it's always time to move on. It's time to evolve. My spirit animal is a butterfly. And a butterfly is forever evolving. And I need to have the grace to myself to evolve and give someone else a chance to come and take over and, and give the new fresh perspective on Maybelline. I'm, I've always been alumni. But you need to have the grace to put it down and, and step away and, and maybe take on something bigger and something better. Nothing to be said about. I think it's just a way of life. 10 years fronting a brand internationally. It's not like a job at somewhere, but it's kind of like I'm traveling. I'm talking to all these like Christy Tellington and Adrian Alima and all that. And it was fantastic. It is so fantastic. Yeah. I cannot explain like words, you know. Yeah, it's wonderful. You got to meet so many very interesting, inspiring people. I'm sure you must have learned not just makeup tips and all that, but also life lessons. Were there any particular things that you learned from them that stood out for you, that really impacted you? I mean, I, I probably did tell you someone before, but right now I couldn't. Everyone I work with taught me something, even though they're younger or older. What secrets I can tell you is every celebrity that I've worked with work very hard. They sacrifice a lot of their personal time. They're always on the road. They, they don't get to see their children much. They don't get to see their partners or their family much because they're there for everybody else to go watch them, see their perform and all that kind of thing. So it's not a win-win situation. And then when they go for a holiday, they're, they're a bit fragile because they've been stretched in all corners. And it's anything unlike what humans do. We can go to work, go tapao some food and go home and eat and watch the TV. They're not like that. They sometimes have to work 16 hour days and then they jump on the plane. And then people are like, huh, why well, you must have first class? Because they haven't slept in three days and they need to get off the plane in Monaco to go do another event. So they need to sleep on the plane things like that or they need to have very funny things like oh you know they have a rider list and, and things like that oh you know I only drink this and this because if they work in 16 different cities over six months they want some sort of a continuity Correct. So if that's what they like and that's the candle they like, they have to go and, and set it up so that it's continuous and all they have to do is just concentrate on performing. So I don't think it's, it's being a diva at all. I don't agree with that, being a diva at all. I totally understand. And every one of them have problems as well. They fight as well. They have children problems as well. They have to be mummies and daddies and all that kind of thing. It's no different. No different. Do you think that COVID has permanently impacted your industry because it's so go, 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 right? And suddenly everyone was stuck at home for a period and you had to hit pause and think about where you are going with your life. In 2019, I think I must have had like 51 flights or something like that. And then I told myself that 2020, <laughs> again, 
Be careful what you wish for. Because I said, I'm not flying anywhere. I'm done. I've got such bad tummy aches. I've got so much gas in my stomach. You know, my digestion is bad. I'm grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. I never have enough sleep. I need some personal space. I'm always on the plane sleeping next to someone I don't know. I don't even probably never see them again. And then COVID hit and then I was literally resting the whole time. <laughs> and last year was great. I think I only started to feel the strain at the end of November where I got fatigued from resting. And then we got back to work again. I mean, my work was great. Like I got to work at Troy Sivan, Tina Arena, Jenna Dewan, and Curtis Smith from Philippines as well. She was here for a while and I worked with her, did a lot of campaigns from Pantene to mineral water brands and everything, tuners with her and all that. It was fantastic. And then I worked very hard and then did a US TV shows. And then when we locked down, we can't go to where I actually rest. And the most stressful thing every morning when I wake up is to decide that, will today be the day that I stand on my weighing scale or should we wait until tomorrow? <laughs> you know so that's the biggest stress I have but I would love to have the capability to see my family in Singapore again I, I think I haven't allowed myself to think that I can't do it because I just put it away and focus on other things but we'll see how dramatic I am when I see them <laughs> But I don't want to feel too sorry for myself because it is what it is and, and I'm comfortable I've got everything I need around me you're very used to living alone and being alone and that's something I think most people struggle with because heaven had to have that enforced loneliness do you have any tips for people going through that on how you have Um, managed to cope find a new skill plan what you want to do the next day or plan what you want to do every day tomorrow I want to go clean out my makeup kit and then I'll just write like little things that you can achieve every day and if you get to there like me half the time I'm like oh it's Tuesday I'm supposed to clean up my laundry nah <laughs> I'm just going to watch Survivor then it's fine but then find ways to improve things and stuff like brings me a lot of joy to do online live drawing classes and then I pay like $10 or something and there's a model or someone that would come on and there'll be like 40 other artists from all different backgrounds that they want to do this live drawing together in this room and then it's two hours and you just draw the person at home will play some cool music like a DJ and then we just sit there with a cup of tea a glass of wine and then we just draw and after that you go I really should practice more. And there's so many online things that that is what I do for me. And I look around the world and I see who's posing what and where. And then you just go in and you pay about $10, $15 and then you get two hours worth. And then I got an iPad and then I just draw it. And then it it, it keeps me sane. And yesterday I made some batang and (laughs) I spent hours doing it with my mother on the phone. And you think like, oh my God, I got nothing to do. I have to go for a walk. It's been two days. I haven't walked. I'm so busy. Like I'm supposed to go. I promise after this, I'm going to go for a walk before my nine o'clock. And I thought maybe I'm deficient in a vitamin D. But overall, it's been good for what it is. It's been good. So before we wrap up, since makeup is your thing, I thought it would be fun to ask you if you were to start a makeup bag from scratch, what yes. would you put into it? Oh, from scratch? Yeah. You know, I've got 25 kilos of makeup in all my bags. <laughs> like each. I would... Oh, uh, so have uh, good skincare, like a multi-purpose skincare, the one that has very good sunscreen. Anything with skincare, I would just say go Korean because right now I, I love Korean. A night cream and then a sunscreen is very good as well for your face, a serum and all that. And then have a beautiful foundation, anything like even a cushion for Asian women. Cushion, I think is very, very pretty. Are there particular products that you would really like? 
Oh my gosh, I love anything from Suhwasu to Innisfree. Anything as acceptable as Innisfree, things like that. I think Korean really knows how to illuminate Asian skin tones very well. That is if you're from the light to medium, but if you go a bit darker, then I wouldn't. For darker skin tones, I, I would go with things like Bobbi Brown because you need to counteract the ashiness in maybe like Malay skin or Indian skin. They're quite gray. And every time there's a bit of gray, you counteract it with a bit of red and a bit of peach. Not yellow because they'll make it more gray. Highlight the gray bits like a gray blocks in your face. So every time when someone has like an ashy area around here or around here, try to use peach or red undertone. Let it sit in and then and then go over with your regular foundation that should be a bit more orangey to really bring up the luminosity face for very very dark skin. like Indian skin, very very dark skin. I do that for African skin as well, so that's really good for blush. I love this Nas blush; is really really beautiful. Stella Cream Blush is very beautiful as well. And Surat from New York, very, very beautiful. For Indian skin or Malay skin, like olive to really deep skin, there is this blush in Nas called Exhibit A. It is bright red, like almost orange. That goes very beautifully on really deep skin tones. I love Dior Mascaras, Maybelline Mascaras. They're all really, really good. Eyelash Curler, please buy a good one. Shuomura is fantastic. Invest in one because they'll last you at least 10 years. So don't buy something that's $6. Like invest in it. Even if it's like 65 ringgit, invest in it because you really want it to shine. Are there particular Korean products that really stand out for you that you love? Oh, anything that says serum in it. <laughs> I think once you're over 40... Like, if it says you can drink it, I would drink it, but I would slap it on my face. So, like, and I got a lot of face, huh? So, when one person buys one bottle, I need two because for this side and then for this side as well. Just a lot of hyaluronic acid is, is very important. Hyaluronic acid is, you know, one gram of hyaluronic acid can absorb up to a thousand times its moisture and weight. So that's one gram. So when you put it on your face, like when you're walking around this human, it starts to absorb the moisture from the environment. Um, there's this powder product that I like to use called By Terry. And By Terry has this loose powder. It looks like white, right? Like tapioca flour. And, and it's got hyaluronic acid in it. But a lot of times when you dust on a powder, your skin's after all looks very crepey and old and dusty. But with hyaluronic acid, it just stays supple and, and quite like juicy and bouncy. So it's a lot of difference. It helps to keep skin radiant and youthful throughout the whole day. And also, oh my God, I want to tell you one of the foundation that I found was the Shiseido Synchro Skin. It's a 24-hour self-renewal foundation. And I've used it on people like Tina Arena and everybody else that need to go on stage and perform. 10 hours later, you come back, the foundation looks as good as new. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> it's like, is this witchcraft? Because I've never used any foundation like that before. So Synchro Skin Shiseido is very good. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that advice, Nigel. I love to end all of my interviews with these questions. So the yeah. first one is this. Do you feel like after all this time, you have found your why? No, I haven't found my why yet. I'm still finding my why. I would love to tell you that, but I don't know why I'm doing this or why I've landed up in Australia instead of Singapore. Or like, I, I don't think I ever find my why. I don't think I ever will, which sometimes troubles me, but I don't have an answer to the why. And what kind of legacy would you want to leave behind? 
that I once made people laugh and, and made their day. I would love people to remember me for uh, acknowledging them as their value as a person. If they want to think about makeup, which I think is a bit frivolous, yeah, all right. I, I don't think I've break, broken through anything with makeup, but what I found during my journey was the connection with people and how to make them feel self-worth. And I, I think although sometimes I've got, even myself, I've got low self-esteem, I have then managed to make other women feel much better about themselves by the time I finish with the hair and makeup. And I, I think that's what I want people to remember me by. And obviously, I want to be remembered as a favorite son. And, only and, son. And <laughs> the only son, the only favorite son. And of, of course, how funny I am. And, and the best uncle. <laughs> I adore my niece so much. You just say that you have low self-esteem because that doesn't come through yeah. at all. Oh, you, you'll be surprised. I'm being very, very honest with you. Yeah, low self-esteem, of course. I said, back of house, front of house. And a lot of people said, how do you do it? I said, I don't know. Like, sometimes I just do it. And, and a lot of people think, oh, you're confident you can do anything. I said, no. It takes a lot of preparation, a lot of preparation. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Humility, loyalty, gratitude, hard work and humor because <laughs> you need all that to go through that and you need to be loyal to people who have helped you you need to be grateful for what you have received you need to be humble to know that you couldn't have done this alone and and, and humble enough to know that you have to still keep learning that everything could be taken away at, at a moment's notice like COVID. and where can people go to find out more about you and support your work oh i thought you would never ask okay uh <laughs> You can definitely contact me or follow me or like or comment or anything at Nigel Stanislaus. That's it. Nigel Stanislaus. And, and say hi. And I'm, I'm always on them as active as I can be. And I also have like a food one as well. It's at, at Nigel Stanislaus Light, as in L-I-T-E. And that was the end of episode 58. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywide.com forward slash 58. Alongside a link to subscribe to the weekly newsletter for this podcast. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting the CEO of one of Singapore's two main commercial port terminal operators, who will share his story of how he went from having a military career spanning Dartmouth, Paris, and Singapore, to how he found his faith when his daughter fell ill, and why it's like running Singapore's port during the global pandemic. See you next Sunday.